It's the season of catalogs. Earlier this week, half a dozen of them were carpeting the floor of Nola's playroom. We turned them over to her and suggested she might circle the things that she wanted, really wanted for Christmas, because she's been making a verbal list since August. So this seemed like a way to kind of rein it in just a little bit, like help her narrow things down to just the toys she's most serious about. It was not. Instead, she circled about 70% of the items listed. Every page marked with ring after ring, hastily drawn, overlapping. As we already heard this morning, if one little live pet brand toy is good, wouldn't all of them be so much better? I asked Nola if I could tell this story, and, um, and then after the uh, children's time, she was like, was that good? <laughs> I was like, you, you set me up perfectly on it. When all you need to do is circle them, why limit yourself? Why not ask for everything you want, which turns out to be everything? So we moved on to having her write out her list. Uh, it takes a lot more effort. And of course, we talked to her about, you know, not asking for too much and not expecting everything that she asks for and, and how fortunate we are to even be able to buy anything at all and how many people have nothing and, and maybe she should think less about what she wants people to give her and more about what she might give them. And as soon as I said that last bit, I heard the voice of my father and his perennial reminder at this time of year, a quintessential Craig Amlin Advent sermon, that this season is all about dreaming of what we will be given, about the excitement and anticipation of receiving that gift, that when it comes to Christmas, despite what every Hallmark movie would have us believe, it is better to receive than to give. This season is all about wanting, asking, demanding even the gifts that we have been waiting for. The unfulfilled items on our wish lists, the hastily drawn overlapping circles that mark out our deepest desires for our world and for our lives. Last December, Rochelle and I got to go to Seville to experience the last seven days of Christmas in Spain where they celebrate all 12. And more importantly, to experience Epiphany, the Dia de los Reyes, the Day of the Kings. We were there for the big buildup to that, which includes the arrival of the carteras, these mail carriers who gather the letters that children write to the kings the same way that kids here sometimes send their wishes to the North Pole. One morning we ducked into this church where a long line of children and parents were waiting their turn to talk to the local cartera. And Mary, one of the friends who had invited us to Seville, pointed to a figure on the altar. A woman dressed resplendently in robe and crown, and Mary told us that this church was dedicated to Nuestra Señora de la O, Our Lady of the O, as in the letter, as in O come, O come, Emmanuel, or come, O long-expected Jesus. 
She's a figure mostly known in Spain now, a representation of the very pregnant Mary, whose feast is the feast of the expectation. And as soon as I heard that name, Our Lady of the O, I wrote it down in my phone, knowing that I would have to preach it this Advent. I imagined Mary's O's to mean so many things. The O of wonder at speaking to angels and, and carrying the child of God. The gasping O of joy at feeling the baby move inside her. The O of exhaustion from a person in their third trimester. The O of breathing through the pain of labor. The cooing O of a new parent holding their child for the first time. All of these O's flashed into my mind the moment after hearing that name. And I like to think that they are part of the story of Nuestra Señora de la O. But when I went home and read about the origins, the history of the O actually relates to something the clergy used to do in Advent, on that Feast of the Expectation, December 18th, after the Vespers service, on one of the longest nights of the year. They would let out this loud, long O from the choir. A groan, a plea, a cry meant to express the longing of the world for the one who will save it. A heart-rending, guttural moan that carries in it all of creation's hopes and desires, its demands for change, for the world to be redeemed, remade for the restoration of what has been corrupted, for the return of whatever is missing in us that fills us with this insatiable need, this emptiness, this incompletion down deep. Whatever it is that sends us into the world reaching out for anything we think might fulfill us. Whatever makes us draw all of those circles over everything, each give. It's the same O that we read at the beginning of this passage from Isaiah. Today is a rare morning when we're using the scripture from the lectionary, the set readings that are suggested for each Sunday. Usually we just, as you know, preach on whatever we want. <laughs> and it may have just been happenstance that this is the lectionary, but today in churches all over the world, people are giving voice to Isaiah's O. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence, to make your presence known to your adversaries, so that the nations would tremble at your presence. You can hear the groan, the longing, tear it open, shake it up, make them tremble. All of these enemies of love, they ought to be afraid because you are going to come down and sort things out. The second half of this passage butters God up. You're the only God who has ever been seen or heard or known. You're the only God who works for those who wait for you. But the demand, the oh, the groan is still there implied. Work already. Work for us. 
If we back up a couple verses before this, we get a clearer picture of the situation. It says, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have long been like those whom you do not rule, like those not called by your name. In other words, it feels like you've forgotten us down here. Our holy places are in ruins, your holy places. Do something. Do you even care? Work. Make the nations tremble. Don't you see how much of a mess it all is? Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. The people make their list of demands, vindication, justice, belonging, forgiveness, salvation, love. They circle it all and they are bold to demand it, to insist upon it, to call God on the carpet. You showed up in ways we didn't expect before. Well, now we expect you. We invoke you. Get down here. It's the kind of prayer I would never dare to pray myself. It felt uncomfortable even just kind of like getting as worked up as I did <laughs> over the last page. To ask so much of God to expect so much, better to focus on what I need to do for God than what I want God to do for me. Better to give than to receive. I have learned not to expect too much. I have learned to trim down my wish list, to circle a few small items and be grateful for what I get. I have learned to be realistic so that I won't be disappointed. Maybe you have too. That is not what Advent is about. Advent is about expressing our real longing for what we really want and need. For all of it. Not what we think we will be given, not the best we can imagine hoping for, but what we are yearning for, aching for, for, for letting that yearning rise in us and rise out of us, a raw, ragged howl of desire flung up toward heaven. And Advent is about expecting it to be answered, demanding that it must be by the God whom we have seen and heard and known. Advent is about asking for what we truly want and believing we will receive it, which is hard, at least for me. I've been singing in a choir this fall, and in our last rehearsal, now that we have the words and notes, you know, more or less down, our director was trying to get us connected to the music at a deeper level, to the emotions of the pieces. And he chose this song we're singing in Hebrew, Bashana Habaah. And he read us the brief English paraphrase at the beginning of the music. Next year, when peace will come, we shall return to the simple pleasures of life so long denied us. You will see, you will see, oh, how good it will be next year. It's a prayer, it's a plea, it's an expectation. And when he read it, my first reaction was that there is no way I can pray it. 
because every prayer is also a statement of belief that it could be answered, that it must be answered. There is no way I can pray it because to pray any prayer is to get your expectations up. And I have worked too hard to lower mine, to put it in bounds, to limit my wish list to what already seems possible, which is such a low bar for hope. That's why we have Advent, I think, to raise the question in us, what would it mean for us to ask for the unexpected, to expect the impossible, to demand it, to circle everything we are longing for, aching for, and deliver that list of demands with a loud, long groan to the God by whose name we are called. What would it do for us or for our world not to trim down our desires, but to circle them all hastily, overlappingly, to plop the catalog down like a gauntlet in front of God and say, I want it all. Vindication, justice, belonging, forgiveness, salvation, love, joy, peace, all of it now. This sermon raises all kinds of questions, for me at least. Like, what's the use of demanding what you don't expect to happen or of expecting what seems impossible? And, and what does it mean if nothing happens or if it does? And what kind of God needs to be buttered up or coaxed or commanded to do what's right? What kind of God can hear their children crying out and not respond? And I don't have those answers. But this is not the season for answers. It is a season for the question we ask with our whole hearts. A season for remembering what it is like to ask for something with our whole hearts. A season to not hold back or tone down or be reasonable, a season to give voice to this insatiable need, this emptiness, this incompletion, to let it rise up in us and out of us, to fling it heavenward and wait for the reply.